action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We're back, and in this series, we're going to feature the best 21st century horror movies. We're kicking things off with Insidious, directed by James Wan, and we have a guest, writer Matt Glasby. Matt's book, The Book of Horror, The Anatomy of Fear in Film, is available now, and sees Matt dissect the most important horror films of the past 60 years. Matt, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Where did you get the idea for the book, and... How hard was it to decide which films were included and were safe and which ended up hacked to pieces in Leatherface's kitchen? Ooh. Um, I've, uh, the idea sort of just came about, um, came about uh, organically because all of the horror books you've ever read, and I've got loads of them, you know, I'm, I'm obviously well into this stuff, are the history of horror. They're the most important horror movies, the biggest box office horror movies, the horror movies that change the genre. But actually, on a Friday night, I think all that most of us care about is, is it scary? So I wanted to go from the other way and have no issues of quality other than if it's scary, it's in the book. Um, so that was the idea behind that. Um, and the uh, when it comes to uh, deciding what would go into the book, <laughs> it was an absolute nightmare. And I spent <laughs> about eight months watching every single thing, like filling in every gap in my in my sort of horror phantom. Uh, sometimes like five, six movies a day, trying to decide if things were scary enough. And I've got to say, mental, in terms of mental health, that isn't the greatest idea you've ever had. <laughs> so it's all good. Do you not just become numb to them after a while? Actually, yeah. Or do you just start jumping at every little yeah, sound? It, it was the jumpy thing, actually. It just I started seeing things a bit, like seeing little flickers of things. And when you catch things out of the corner of your eye on TV or when you're passing, my brain just assumed it was like a long dead J-horror wraith coming for me. And it took a few months to calm down again. So, um, while I'm very proud of the book, I, I don't really want to go back into the headspace anytime soon. You just spent months in that heightened sense of panic. Yeah, exactly. So when the door suddenly slams, you know, it's only bad news. It's got quite a cool format to it where you kind of, you kind of, it's not a rating, but you kind of break each film down to about six or seven tropes. So things like Dead Space and the Grotesque and Dread and a few other things. Did that format come out of watching the films, you know, four or five films a day for eight months? Or was that something you went into the process already knowing that that's what it was going to be? That's actually, that's a really good question. Um, That that was thought of first actually um josh helped me come up with those seven uh seven i call them scare <laughs> tactics and i sat down with josh and our friend rosie in the pub and we went through all of the different things that specifically horror films do so you could say you know like films use jagged editing to make us you know unnerved but all films do that so we had to think of things only horror films do or that specifically horror mm. films do and i split them into seven different things some of those are technical some of those are narrative some of those are just sort of tropes that we're used to in horror and then i watched all of the films i intended to include and a load of others and sort of divided the scares up into these special moments um to see you know so the idea is that most horror films have most of these seven tactics in them just some of them have loads of one and a little bit of the other 
and it's like a sort of graphic equaliser of fear with, with different ones turned up on different movies. Was it easy to go, well, hang on, I've got three films already that do nothing but jump scares. Let me get rid of all this. Or was it a real battle to say, well, I have films with jump scares, but I really want this other one because it's got that one moment, but I don't want to overplay all the jump scares. The problem actually was something like if you've got something with loads of jump scares, the chances are it's you know it's it's quite scary even in the moment. But the problem was is, is I wanted to include some serial killer films, and actually when you start digging into serial killer films, most of them are more thriller than horror, and actually mm. they I started to they don't use a lot of techniques that scare us. Often like something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is in there, but actually it's mostly presented very straight what's happening. It is gory, it is violent, and there is some kind of gothic music, but like it isn't stylistically horrific. Um, so it was quite difficult trying to find films that matched that and were still scary because there's loads of things that are really, really horrific or, you know, or whatever. But actually to, to sort of get the things going on the back of your neck was really tricky with that. So that was the tough, one of the toughest things. Silence of the Lambs comes to mind. I was thinking about, about that film as well. Horror, because I don't think it's a horror. Yeah. I've always seen it as just a police procedural thriller. I'm with you. Silence of the Lambs to me is a, a horrific thriller. I think yeah. the, mm. the definition of horror at the start is that a film that's setting out to scare you. And, you know, you can argue about this till you're blue in the face, but that's the definition I chose for the book. I think Silence of the Lambs mm. is a film about the FBI and FBI procedure that happens to feature incredibly effective, very visceral serial killers and, ser- and serial killings. And I think people confuse it when people say it was the first horror movie to win all the five main Oscars. I just don't think it is. I think it's just got more gore than you get from a normal thriller. Where did your love of horror come from? <laughs> did you have a traumatic childhood? <laughs> I had a traumatic childhood, just as I bet every <laughs> single person you have a guesting on this had a traumatic childhood. I'm going to say in, in that graphic equaliser, a very low traumatic childhood, not a very high traumatic childhood. But um, yes, I was a weird, odd, dark kid. And I got into weird, odd, dark stuff. Like, I know that you did, and like, I know that Josh did. Um, yeah. And uh, I think horror gets you young and it just gets you for life, doesn't it? Like, I think one of, that's one of the things oh, yeah. about the book is that you're looking for the next hit of being scared. And I think I've been looking for that since I was like 10 years old. Does that go some way to explain why horror, it never seems to die? There's always a revival and it's always horror. Horror usually seems to be the next craze whether it's the slasher moving into the j-horror moving into gore then coming round to sort of seven-ish style horror films they never seem to disappear and why is that i mean we're never gonna stop being scared of things so watching that reflected back on us is never going to go out of fashion and going right back to the beginning of all stories you know this horrific things in the bible and this ghosts in shakespeare you know it's a very uh monsters in in children's fairy tales that's very common that will keep happening also horror films are cheap and they make loads of money and i think especially now that they're being a bit more accepted critically there's except for the very young there's no one that, that won't go and see a horror movie so you know your chance of hitting a massive audience for very little outlay with just a cool concept so one of the great things about you know thinking like the Blair Witch Project costs nothing and we're talking mm. about it 25 years later you know so you really can reach a lot of people uh, very easily if you've got a good idea what is it that you feel defines a 21st century horror film whoa 
<laughs> that was the journalist's question. Whoa. That was my question. Twenty-first yeah, century Josh's question. <laughs> Just stick the knife in and see what happens. That's, that's the twenty-one year, the twenty-one years of horror defined. I yeah. I haven't even begun to think about that. Should I have thought about that? But it's, it's, it's an odd one because I think I think post Blair Witch horror films changed, especially in the last twenty years. We've seen. You know the the we have some things like from Blumhouse that are a bit of a throwback that clearly have their roots in the old German expressionist films and then the monster films of of Universal. Mm. But then we've got things like Hereditary and The Witch and things like that coming out of A twenty four. There's definitely there's definitely a a difference between the horror films we've had in the past twenty years and the horror films that maybe came from the 60s and 70s onwards up until the end of the 90s so i just wonder mm. why i mean we're doing a series on 21st century horror mm. but what is it about 20th century horror that really stands out what makes it what i mean i don't i keep i'm, I'm, I'm going around aren't i it's that term elevated horror. <laughs> yeah why why yeah, suddenly yeah. are we calling them elevated horrors when before we were just calling them horror i think People always talk about different golden ages of horror and it was the 30s with the Universal Monsters and then it was the 70s with The Exorcist and what have you in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I think just after the Blair Witch Project and the J-horror, um, so, so in the early noughties, I think there was a new golden age of horror. We've got martyrs, we've got French, new French extremism, you've got J-horror, you've got amazing, sort of beautiful, almost Oscar-worthy Spanish horror, like really classy, all these different things happening. And I remember thinking, this is a golden age of horror then. And I think what's happened is, is that it hasn't gone away. I think people have become more clued into it. There is the elevated horror that you talk about, which you know, really is getting to sort of award-winning and sort of being thought of as prestige movies. It, there's always the low-budget element because it'll always make money. So I think that we're just getting more and more and more after that initial like third golden age at the turn of the millennium. And um, so it's a really great time to be... Uh, a horror critic and lots of the films in the book mm. of horror are from the last 20 years because there's just a ton of really scary stuff you know so they're not necessarily mm. going to be something that we're writing about in 50 years time but if you stick one of those on on a friday night you're going to get got that is it that is interesting because you don't go prior 1960 and 1960 is the year of psycho and that is a another turning point in what horror could be so why did you what well, i mean was it a conscious decision i'm not going prior prior 1960 or is that just not your ballpark you don't there's, like being down there there's uh there's dead of night is in there from 1945 but mostly you're right the main films uh psycho and um peeping tom from 1960 are the sort of first time and there's a, there's a couple actually there are a couple from the 50s but in terms of the main films the reason being oh uh, yeah 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 i see what you mean because just to give the readers a heads up there's there's what 20 odd films as the main chapters but then each one has further further viewings yeah that's right so there's 34 main yeah. films and then each has got 34. three uh, recommended films to watch yes. so you get a sort of really broad spectrum of uh, things that you've heard of and things you haven't and i think the reason there's a couple of reasons why i sort of uh, 
stopped there i think if you go back long enough there are lots of really great films really atmospheric really beautifully made but i think if you go back too far it's hard to call them scary i think we've become more sophisticated as modern audiences and people can say what they like about the universal films but i don't think modern audiences find them scary and also i guess this was never intended to be a history of horror this was intended to be as mentioned Mm. about the scariest films ever made so if you want to dig back into you know go back into 1905 and watch five minute silent horror movies and things like that well there's a million other books to do that but i suppose i didn't Mm -hmm. want to spend two years writing a bad horror film history instead of (laughs) spending a year writing a really great history of of being scared there's only one person that can do a history of horror in this country and that is the hat wearing kim newman exactly (laughs) <laughs> uh final question before we move on uh-huh. uh of the three of them freddie jason michael who do you prefer uh jason by by a country mile i just that was where i was at when i was uh, growing up i think i saw friday the 13th films first i would argue that there are more good friday the 13th films good in inverted commas but like than there are any of the others um I will count them out for you if you wish. <laughs> uh, yeah. We've done them. We've been through all the 13 films. Um, yeah, we watched on the our whole very first On one of our first episodes. I think it's episode mm. five. Joshua, I already know the answer for you. Your answer is going to be... Michael Myers. Michael. And my answer is... Scared the shit out of me. My answer is Freddy. <laughs> oh, yours is Freddy. Yeah, you just love Freddy. We should, do this, yeah, again. We should do this again, guys. That's amazing. <laughs> we are with the holy trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> we really are. Of horror, of 80s horror. Okay, so yeah. let's move on to this featured film, Insidious from 2010, directed by James Wan. It was his first film, I believe, and then he went on to direct no Saw. it's not his oh, first, no, was his first film wasn't it <laughs> no it wasn't was it not <laughs> was it's like his fourth film <laughs> rob's done his research <laughs> well he's directed saw the conjuring aquaman and the nun as in n-u-n not n-o-n he didn't direct the nun did he, he not um, <laughs> no oh that was Corin who Hardy. did the fucking nun <laughs> that was corin hardy <laughs> Oh. It's called Google, Rob. Yeah, it's, it's okay, so it modern. was N-O-N-E. I was right in that sense. I think yeah. I saw this on my own at the View Cinema in Angel, oh. and I was terrified. I weirdly saw this on my own at the... Um, was it the Genesis? It was like... I think it was the Genesis in... Um, where is that? Whitechapel area. Yeah. And I went to the, the journalist screening, but I was went on my own because there weren't enough tickets to go around or something. And um, I was, maybe it's because I was on my own. I was absolutely shit scared. Mm. You know, the second that the the title card comes up and those whimpering violins kind of start, I was just like, oh, fuck, what have I I got myself into here? It's really old school. That feels Mm. like 30s, 40s, and then Freakin' used it in The Exorcist. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really unnerving, especially when you're in the, in a room on your own. And in my screening, there was almost no one there. If I was on my own, I would not have survived. Matt, when did you first see it? <laughs> uh, mine was a critic screening. I was reviewing it um, for Total Film. And it was, yeah, a medium-sized critic screening full of uh, cynical film journalists. Um, but, hmm. you know, it, I do remember being really, really scared initially certainly there's um it's no i mean it's big he it's it's big and it's loud and it kind of it's not subtle but it is really effective he's james one is really good at getting a response 
from the audience. Mm. Um, and also, we haven't seen these, you know, there's been a whole rash of Insidious and Conjuring Universe films since then. But at that point, this was just, this was, we, had, yeah. we knew nothing about this stuff, did we? We didn't know this was going to be like the new, the new thing. Well, this was no. this was one of Blumhouse's very early initial successes, wasn't it? Made for cheap, and then unbelievably successful in financial terms. It kind of it kind yeah. of made them. Well, it kind of came it came the year after Paranormal Activity, which I think probably still is what the most successful horror film ever made because it was made for about twenty p and it made about twenty million dollars or something. <laughs> so I think that yeah that. I think that because the technology had really got so much cheaper, especially in you know the early noughties, you could make films like this on the cheap. And, and nowadays, when you look back at Insidious, you can see that they, you know, very cleverly put filters on to kind of hide if it was lower budget. Um, but but yeah, I think that you you know it, it was that period where suddenly you could make good horror films really cheaply and they wouldn't look cheap and shit they would look really really good i think this looks really expensive watching it back i think like like you say about you know the the font the opening font and this this sort of deep dark house it's not you know it's it's, it's a modern mm. house but it's kind of quite gothic their, their first house that they're in i think uh there's lovely like uh canted angle shots and like i think you can tell that like just uh james one really knows what he's doing and i think yeah i think it does look really expensive mm. it doesn't look like a like a paranormal activity like someone's just made it in their own home it looks like a big proper movie but it's not so mm. big that it's like a, a blockbuster it's really hard to be scared by sort of blockbuster horrors yeah because like patrick wilson was probably the biggest name in it wasn't he because rose byrne wasn't no she did bridesmaids the next year um, and and I guess Lynn Shay had been in like something about Mary and stuff like that, but she she wasn't like a, a well known name. So it's like a small, intimate, not particularly yeah. well known cast as well. She was known in horror circles because she was in oh Bob Shay's wife sister. Oh sister, <laughs> Bob Shay's sister. Um, I just assumed they were married. <laughs> but she was in she was in Nightmare on Elm Street, wasn't she? She was the teacher. That's right. Like barely. Barely. I'm, Very well, briefly. She was in it, but it's not like she was barely the teacher. She was in it. She was just barely in it. It's definitely yeah. a film of two halves, this this film, Insidious. Yeah. Definitely a film of two halves. The first half is tight and it is scary and it's so well constructed. And I think James Wan really shows himself as a brilliant filmmaker. In terms of the cinematography... It's incredibly muted. It doesn't feel slick. It doesn't feel, you know, shiny or almost over the top like the Conjuring films would would have their particular style. The, the sort of bleachy, unsettling look only really gets elevated when the ghostly stuff is happening. And it's really subtle because you don't realise that it's kind of happening. Mm. I think the subtle is a good word. Like the opening credits where you, you get the shots around the house. Yeah. It's really, it's insidious. It's really cleverly sort of um, 
sort of suggesting that you was inviting you to start looking for things in corners you know you're looking at those still frames of the house and it invites you to seek out little weird things and sometimes there are spooky things in the frame and sometimes there aren't and it really cleverly sets you up into that mode of thinking where later on you're going to be rewarded because you're going to have to look out for this shit and it's fucking terrifying if you spot it or you know if you go further that may those those shots of the house may just completely brush over people and only on a second watch yeah. or a third yeah, watch yeah, and they yeah. realize we were told something mm-hmm. it was foreshadowing and i didn't even realize i think it is a film that that benefits from repeat viewing because like i have a, i actually hadn't seen it for a long long time but when um you know this couple they've just moved into the house with their children and when the baby first cries for the very first time and and Rose Byrne runs upstairs to to get the baby and the baby's like inconsolably screaming um when you first see it you're like ah oh, poor baby is you know on his own <laughs> on her own in the cot but if you've seen it you're like fuck that's because somebody was standing over that yeah. baby and she was in the cot absolutely terrified yeah so it kind of does benefit from that repeat viewing i think how do you feel about the music matt <laughs> well i'm not sure i agree with it, you guys that it's subtle i think it's really really oh. well made but i think we start with you know basically pictures of demons around the house and then there's a sort of creeping camera and the music of my recollection i'm always really bad with music i remember being sort of quite emphatic uh and there's i think it, it does a really good job i just don't really i don't you know some subtle things mean you could think you're genuinely watching a drama for a while but i think we do know that we're watching a horror film and bad things are on their way one thing i noticed that is a really it does really well is that there's lots of like repetitive sounds so for some reason even though they live in like (laughs) american suburbia they've got a grandfather clock it just like ticks away menacingly (laughs) and then there's water and then she's got a metronome which obviously she's a songwriter so it's fair enough you'd have a metronome and then later on there's um when their son is in the coma, there's the, his life support that bleep bleep. So there's just that constant kind of on edge, mm. like heartbeat sound, which comes from the the story of the film, which is clever. I think the the score has such a brilliant old school feel to it, and it feels almost improvised. And the only way I could describe it, and I mean it with the utmost respect, it sounds like an orchestra gracefully falling down the stairs. <laughs> because it's got it's got loads of piano bangs and then sort of string scratches but not in a i mean it's very psycho and it's very you know 1940s style no do you know what it is it's black christmas it's the it's the plucking on the piano strings and it's bashing on the is? piano strings which is black christmas is what they did in that film but, the, but, but it feels like it's homaging as opposed to copying in terms of in terms of using those kind of strings in a horror film but it's also got abstract yeah. noises and jarring and i don't feel it's overused a lot of the scenes can play out with no score and then only at at the peak of of the scariness does the music come in yeah i think it plays with that the silence and then the big mm. crashing noises to really sort of get you definitely matt yeah. Well, I'm still confused on your music. Uh, so, <laughs> so, like, it's one of those things when I watch a movie. Matt had his like, earplugs in when he was I'll, watching. I'll be watching something, and, and after a while, you know, you'll you read about it and be like, oh, that, the amazing thing about the film is it's got no score. And you'd be like, didn't have a score? What? So, I'm just like, I'm re- I probably shouldn't admit this, but I'm just, I just get sucked in with that stuff. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I noticed her song 
which is pretty bad. But no, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, yeah. um, she's got a lovely she's voice. Got a lovely voice, what but her song, the song is is not yeah. good. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there's probably yeah. I'm guessing big uh, big Bernard Herman um, strings unsettling, yeah. doing a good job. Yeah. One thing that struck me this time watching it is that uh, that song "Tiptoe Through the Tulips." Hmm. barely in it but it's so connected to this film but it's in it for what 45 seconds and it's just a little bit of i have a question (laughs) a question relating to tiptoe through the tulips but i thought that was coming later so that Uh song again the record is from their record collection so why why the hell yeah because it's like it's being played isn't it 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 stops oh right the families i thought you meant james one so but they're like thirty-five-year-old married couple. Like, why have they got this terrible tiptoe through the tulips song? Like, why, why is that? Why have they got that on vinyl? I never saw it like that. I thought that she'd put on something groovy, oh. and then mm. the the little ghost boy, played by a thirty-year-old man, that little ghost boy, had like put it on because that's the song that he maybe was listening to when he was not a ghost boy. He was an alive boy. So is it a ghost record or is it... So it's not one of the... Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, it's yeah, a ghost I reckon record. it's a ghost record. I thought it was just one of those things where you're at the back and you're like, who bought this? Oh, well, anyway. And just <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was his mum's and she was like, you'll love it, darling. It's not creepy at all. No, I think it's the ghost boys. Okay. That, Definitely. That makes perfect sense. That's fine. <laughs> but it's just crazy that that song has become so synonymous with this film and yet it's in for the smallest, the almost... Like, yeah. go out of the room, make a cup of tea, and you'll miss it. It doesn't repeat and yeah. repeat and repeat. I think, I mean, just that's one of that, so that whole sequence is just incredible, actually. And actually, yeah, has had she, you know, she's so she's wandering through their new house, and the tiptoe through the Juliet's is playing, and there's a little, a little ghost boy is appearing and not appearing, building up to a couple of really big scares. I was just thinking, um, mm. I, d- I guess you guys have seen Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House. And one of the things that, yes, that, that uh, characterises that is that there's lots of ghosts that the characters don't see. So in the background, you're constantly sort of passing ghosts, which is very scary, and also that you don't see necessarily. And I thought maybe mm. that was the first time, because she walks past the little boy and he's just standing in the corner and she's just going about a thing like doing the washing. So he's right really there. The we rack. see him and she doesn't. Yeah. Facing and I thought the wall. maybe that was that's yeah. sort of in, such a good scare. Uh, that's I've mm. seen that a lot of times since, I guess. And also, it shouldn't. That shouldn't work. That flip from, oh dear God, he was just standing in the corner, to then this like really quite ridiculous song and a ghost boy dance doing a jig. Like it really shouldn't work. But because the film flirts with like absurdity, it almost just works perfectly. Because can I just stop you there? You just said the phrase ghost boy doing a jig <laughs> honestly <laughs> i honestly like got the creeps just from that that phrase like if, I, if i'm coming back if i'm coming back to my house and there is a ghost boy doing a jig i am gonna absolutely shit my pants and i'm just putting it out there um one thing i will say they seem to move house with so much ease no stress <laughs> the boxes are art directed in the kitchen with proper writing no sellotape it's not realistic that is i've got to say that's one of my favorite things about the script for this film 
is that they so they move into their original house spooky stuff happens their kid goes into a coma they see demons and they move house to another one <laughs> mm-hmm. which no one's ever done in history because they they're not renting they can't just move easily they sell up and move out which is yeah. what you would do if you'd come back if demons were menacing yeah. a family and i love the fact that and also it's that. what the it's what the audience are screaming yeah, yeah, yeah. at the at the you know, move house. It's for such God's a big sake. call. Oh, oh, so you, you can't, oh, okay. house you can't just get a deposit together. You might <laughs> take a hit and lose your equity. Maybe you've got a help to buy loan that you've got to pay back. No, they did shoot all that. They just cut it out because it was too long and boring. <laughs> you don't know how much. <laughs> like, you scenes. don't know how much money she makes as a songwriter because he's a he's a True. public she might, teacher. Yeah, they didn't sell that. She house. might make. She didn't money. write one song in the whole film. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't need to, mate. <laughs> maybe maybe she wrote a really successful jingle and she's made all her money from that or a remix of tiptoe through the tulips which is why she's got the original mm, like possibly kind of, yeah that's, that's i'm not going to do it but like a kind yeah. of uh, yeah an ibiza version <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you feel about ghosts do you believe in them <laughs> you're asking me both of you uh i I'm scared of ghosts, but I'm not entirely sure I believe in them. Same. (laughs) Same. Really scared of them, actually. Same, same, (laughs) same. It's more that I know they don't exist, but I don't want to put myself in a full sense of security, suddenly turn around and there's a Mm. fucking ghost boy doing a jig in front of me. (laughs) And I've not prepared myself for that. So it's almost... It's almost more intelligent to believe in them so if they just happen to be real i'm prepared yeah. i go oh yeah i've been waiting for you cover your back i've been waiting for you get mm. your get your fucking hands off my records <laughs> see i i don't i'm not afraid of ghosts i'm afraid of people you ain't afraid of people ghost. Are far scarier. yeah i'm more if i go to the bathroom in the middle toilet in the middle of the night and it's really dark and I can't really see. I'm not afraid that a ghost is going to jump out. I'm afraid that a guy has climbed in the window and is going to jump out. Why don't you turn the light on? Because I don't want to wake everyone up. But is everyone in the bathroom with you? <laughs> Do you, yeah. Tom, and the no, cat if I all turn go the, light the bathroom on, together? If you turn the bathroom light on when you're in the middle of the night, it's going to wake you up and you'll be up all night. I'll wake you up. Oh, I see. Yeah, but yeah. I like to know where I'm peeing. <laughs> Um, Unless you well, do, I don't a posh, do a posh wee, <laughs> sit down. What, in the, in the sink? In the bath. What about astro projection? Do you believe in astro projection? No. No. <laughs> this, is, this is the problem with the film, isn't it? Is there's a really good sort of ghost story for like half, and then the second half mm. brings in. It's, it's like, it's such a tight piece of scripting and filmmaking to start off with, and then it suddenly brings in Patrick Wilson's history, Patrick Wilson's mum, a medium, two dodgy mm. mediums with Aussie accents, uh, astral projection, demons, and you're like, no, 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 wait, I just thought th- I just thought there was a couple of demons menacing this guy's family. Um, and actually, one yeah. of the things I didn't notice the first time I see it is that it's basically her movie, and it's Rose Byrne, she's amazing, and she's an appealing character. And then he's barely in it, and then about halfway through it switches to be about his movie, and I just, I don't mm. think the, the character's earned it, like he's... He stays away from the house. He leaves them there. He's working late. I just think they should have, have kept with her as the lead and him as like useless husband. Because I think it's yeah. that thing like... Because he saves the day. She doesn't do anything, really. True, but then he's hardly in the first half. Um, it's just a weird... No, yeah, he's it's, not. It's a yeah. weird... Sad, like, and then she's making breakfast for their three kids and he's like 
putting on guy liner and checking. Yeah, like, no, he's putting what, on night cream. What kind of dad are you? you? You've got to be in there with breakfast. You can't be like doing. Yeah. Yeah, can't be doing night cream or whatever it is at this point. Is that not like the point of the film? Is that it's such a horror remake that it's almost traveling through the decades it's like remixing horror over the decades so it starts out as like a 30s sort of scary ghost film and then it progresses to poltergeist and ghostbusters and then like nightmare on elm street and then it moves it into like what it wants to be like a modern day version of a haunted house film so it's kind of progressing through horror history a much more elegant description than i think the actual the actual synopsis <laughs> of the film warrants which to me is better. yeah maybe it's basically five star terrifying five star movie that becomes kind of laughable two star movie i don't know if it becomes laughable like i didn't love the second half when i first saw it but watching it again this time knowing that it wasn't going to stay mm. as that first half i actually felt like it was an admirable attempt to do something different but it had too many ideas like the, that final 20 minutes just becomes this soup of ideas where it should have kept it as simple as the first half it's was. basically like a, when it goes into the further it's like a bad nightmare in elm street so that must be right up your street rob um uh, i feel attacked <laughs> <laughs> i do feel i mean i've never never much like the astral projection scenes it it feels and it looks cheap yeah and i get that they might be going for an old school 1920s kind of vibe but a it's in color and b it's 2010 it just isn't yeah it just doesn't work anymore it feels like they hired out a black box theater turned all the lights off but one yeah turned cranked up the smoke <laughs> machine and asked uh patrick wilson to do run on the spot looking scared but everything that had come up until that point was connected to the patrick wilson character suddenly we've got all these other ghouls and ghosts yeah, that yeah, yeah. have no connection like the 1950s mm. family it felt like the, the film was being weird for the sake of being weird and i wouldn't be surprised mm. if that section was beefed out with some reshoots when they said this isn't weird enough let's chuck in some americana nuclear family bullshit the other problem is is that your basic way to scare people is by convincing them that the film you're seeing which is fictional is real and so when the person in that film goes into like a dream sequence which obviously Nightmare obviously does do well but goes into a thing that determinedly is is less real than their reality it's really hard to, to care anymore. So, like, he's in his house, yeah. there's demons, mm. they've taken his son, all this stuff, scary. And then he's in the further, it's all very sort of ghost training. And I'm like, all oh, this just isn't real. It's just mm. a panto now. And But they try to fix that by having the ghosts almost crossing over to attack his family and the other people in the real world. But you, there's no stakes for that because you don't understand what that setup actually is so it's trying to bring stakes into something that hasn't been explained okay, so, I've, so i reviewed this film the first time when it came out i wrote about a very little capsule review for my popular book that we've talked about and uh but and so i watched it again <laughs> for this podcast and it was only this time that i could tell you what happens at the end that the woman comes back and it's uh. him and it's like and it gets them like that is so messy compared to where we started that it's impossible yeah. to, to recount that that's the ending. But that is the ending. But it's not the old woman, is yeah. it? It's it's the Darth Maul demon in the guise of the old woman, isn't it? Oh, yeah, whoever. I mean... Is it? 
whoever the fuck it <laughs> no, is. No, it's the old lady. It's an old, but why is it the old she's, lady? She's, a, she's in the end credits as well. Did you watch right to the end of the nah. credits? No. I barely watched right she's to the end like, of the movie. She right. comes back. Why, did, did, did Nick Cage yeah. come and recruit her into the Avengers? <laughs> Nick Cage? Not Nick Cage. With his eye patch. <laughs> What's his name? Have you taken your um, antihistamine today, Rob? What's his name? <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Nick Fury. Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah, but Nick Cage is. <laughs> that would be I mean, he'll do anything for money, so he probably would have done it. I wouldn't have been you surprised if that's how it ended. You come, you come to the Avengers? <gasps> that's my Nick Cage. <laughs> um, would this have been better off as just a one off, or are you a fan of the however many sequels there are in the insidious cinematic universe? Uh, I haven't seen two. I hear it's bad. Three was okay. I think there's a just a big problem with with sequels with these things. Um, I think the Conjuring. I don't like the second Conjuring, but I think they had the right idea of having like a different case and having things less connected because mm, there's only yeah, so yeah. many it's scary the second stuff. Conjuring can... when they go to Enfield. Yeah, it's yeah. very it's so weird. It's, it's so like weird. we're going to Milton Keynes next. <laughs> <laughs> it's so super it's, no because the Enfield haunting is super but famous yes, like, it, I know but sense. it's Enfield the second, it's 10 minutes from here or whatever I think it's a genius the second idea one is, I think it's basically genius. 9 hours long set in Enfield but and written by people that have never visited this part of that part of the country no, oh. it doesn't look like, <laughs> it doesn't look like Enfield no one should no, go to Enfield it looks Enfield. like Illinois or yeah, and everyone's Australian and you're like this is so weird <laughs> um, I have seen Insidious part i'm assuming it's part two part chapter, chapter, chapter two. two chapter two and it 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 kind of um kind of backs the future part twos itself where it loops in and oh yeah it, it kind of retcons so you know the scene in the first one where patrick wilson's having a bit of trouble with the front door it keeps opening and setting the alarm off yeah hmm. spoilers that's him oh my god that's good though that sounds quite good so, so i remember really i do idea. remember liking that the third one isn't about the family it's a prequel with lynn shay and how she came yeah to start working with the two annoying annoying ones the big one with the beard that looks like one of the bad guys from superman 2 and then lee <clears throat> wannell yeah. who wrote yeah. it and then the fourth one uh, fourth it's one? called the last key oh and it should be the last one even though there is another one coming I didn't... and it's all lynn shay the fourth one is all lynn shay and she's not She's not quick on her feet, so it's a very slow-moving film. <laughs> she doesn't so much as walk away or run away as kind of tread lightly Float. because her carer is not there walking away. I love it when you can um, <laughs> when they're, they're looking for more sequels. They're like, who do we want to know more about? Those two Aussie blokes and the old woman. You're like, no, I don't want to. She's just a medium, and it's just too like Aussie. But like, no, I loved her. She was totally a prototype based on Lorraine Warren, who was you know the the psychic in um, yeah. The Conjuring, like I'm this was like a prototype of the Conjuring, basically. Whatever, carry on, carry on. Can you hear me? Um, that's Poltergeist. Oh, what were you? What's wrong about? with you today? <laughs> Lockdown's um, been tough, tough on Rob. I've been. I'm on a. For the past six weeks, I've been on a calorie controlled diet, and <laughs> it's messing with my head. I've dropped a stone in the But half. you look fantastic. I do. I look amazing. Who cares if I'm making sense? You've lost your I, brain, but I you look amazing. Um, yeah. Tell us your Lee Wannell story. Okay. <laughs> this is, so they were doing publicity for Insidious 3, which I 
he directed as well as writing and so they 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 do a little like launch for journalists and they had like the downstairs of a bar and then made loads of spooky things happen so they had a kind of uh vr game you can all have a go on and there's free drinks and uh lee lee one owl lee is is there and so that we're all sitting down and there's a like a, a sort of medium on stage who does a seance now <laughs> the two friends i've come with instead of sitting down next to me end up sitting nearer the stage and, and are pulled up for one trick early on and then they sit down and then the seance begins and the guy says hold hands with the person next to you so instead of holding hands with my lovely friends of 10 years i'm like i'll just hold hands with the guy next to me but the guy next to me is lee one <laughs> he's also on his own so it's this fantastic oh. thing where we're like well it's his it's his show so he's got to enter into it but he's also an Australian man yeah. and probably doesn't want to hold hands with a random journalist who I'm not holding anyone's hand. I'm just holding his. But, but because it's so weird. <laughs> See, so he's on your left and there's, and no, there's one no one on your right. right. So it's just him and I holding oh, hands. God. But even better than that, because I'm so nervous of holding his hand, I just slip two awkward little fingers into his grasp, which he grasped really firmly. So, so I can't change. I can't change my thing because it's weird. And also, the seance goes on for ten minutes. So Lee Monell holds on to my two weird fingers for ten minutes, and then I'm like, "What's going to happen when the light comes on?" Because we can't look at each other. This is so weird and intimate. And, uh, and he left it, 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 before the light came up. He'd gone. So he just held my he held my two fingers for ten intimate minutes and then like that he was gone. So that was Insidious, directed by James Wan. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. Oh, it's quite it's quite a depressing one. <laughs> <laughs> um, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast and wherever you get your pods from so you don't miss that episode. Joshua? And we are on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come and let us know what you thought of Insidious and, you know, just come and chat about 21st Century Horror. We're off to tiptoe through the tulips. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. And I'm Matt Glasby. Cut! Cut.